0: As Jeff just read for us, we are going to study uh, Ephesians 3, and um, what a wonderful chapter it is, and we're going to study Paul's prayer, and before we do that, let's basically pray Paul's prayer, that God would give us grace and strength to grasp what we're going to try to grasp today. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask and pray that you would please be with us, that you would, out of your riches and your kindness and your grace and your power, that you would give us strength, you would give us power to comprehend the great love that Christ has for us. Please, we pray, please, through the inner working of the Holy Spirit, through Christ dwelling within us, please help us that we would be able to grasp. And know something that surpasses knowledge, and that you would be with us. We need your supernatural help. We need your grace now. We pray for your grace. Speak to our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a handout in your bulletin that we will be reading if you'd like to um, get that ready. We will be reading that near the end of the sermon, though. Um, We are studying. We are studying Paul's prayer. We're actually studying a prayer here, and um, we're trying to understand this prayer so that we can pray this prayer for ourselves and for others. And this is an actual prayer that Paul uh, is praying for them, because he says, "For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father." In verse fourteen, and and this is his prayer. And he writes down these prayers. Uh, so that there to be models for us on how we're to pray and, and, and such. And so we're trying to understand this, this very deep and, and glorious prayer. And today, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to enter into the actual heart of the prayer. As uh, we've said already, this prayer is sort of comes to us in steps. It, it sort of takes us up to the pinnacle of height of experience with Christ. And so let's just review where we've come from. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named. And then he begins the prayer. He says that he would grant you, that God would give us, according to the riches of his glory, he would reach into his treasure chest of riches, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Paul is praying for supernatural strengthening by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do something. And then he says this in verse 17 that Christ may dwell, may, may take up residence, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. He wants, he's praying that Christ taking up residence in our heart, moving in our heart. And his presence would be felt and experienced, that Christ would, his, his, the reality of Christ in our heart would be made known to us. Now, we've looked at a couple verses that, that point in this direction as well. John 14, 23, it says this, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Then check out this last line here. And we will come to him and make our home with him. And so here's this idea of God dwelling in us and living in me and and me experiencing that. Or the familiar passage in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3.20. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus speaking to the Laodicean church. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And notice the next word. I will dine with him and dine with him and he with me. There's this intimate fellowship that takes place as Jesus dwells and lives in our heart. And that's what Paul is getting at, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And that's what we looked at last week. Your taproots would go deep in. The foundation would be, would be built in order that you would be able to and that's the next phrase. The next verse is this, verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all of the saints, that you would be able to comprehend. Now here, just to give you an idea of what Paul is actually saying here, the word able here, uh, which probably should have been translated a little bit uh, stronger. Uh, The word means to have strength to accomplish something, to have strength to accomplish a task, to be fully able to accomplish that task. And that's what Paul is praying. He is praying that we would be strengthened and fully able to accomplish a task. And what is that task? The task is to comprehend, to grasp. The word means to grasp something and to grab hold of it and take hold of it and not let go of it. But the word also means to grasp something for yourself, to, to take it to yourself, to grab it and bring it to yourself. And it means to, to lay hold on something very, 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 very strongly, grab it like that. Now, here it means the word, that's the original root of the word. Here the word means to lay hold and grasp something with your mind, to comprehend it, to to get a hold of it. And that's, so that's what Paul is praying here. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to give you the sense of the power, verse 18a, uh, the beginning of it, that he's praying that, that we would be strengthened and enabled to grasp something and to lay hold of it and to comprehend it. That's the prayer, okay? What are we supposed to lay hold and grasp and comprehend? Well, then that's what he says next. With all the saints... Children, remember that phrase. I talked about that last week. That means the children of the Ephesian church, because he's addressing them, the slaves of the Ephesian church, the housewives of the Ephesian church, the mothers, the fathers, the workers, the elderly. He wants everyone to grasp this. This isn't for some high spiritual uh, saints out there. It's because there's no such thing as these super saints. We're all saints, and he wants all of the saints to grasp this. Grasp what? What is the width, the length, and the depth, and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And so he's he's praying that we would grasp something, the width, and he describes it like this, the width, the length, the depth, and the height. The width, the length, the depth, and the height. He's talking four dimensions, width, length, depth, height. This absolute massive thing is what he's talking about. And what he's describing is the love of Christ. So he wants us to be able to fully grasp, by God's grace, get supernatural power from God to grasp, to comprehend this width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. He's asking that we would be able to comprehend something that is vast. That's why width, length, depth, and height. He wants us to, to, to grasp and comprehend the vastness of something. Vast. Now here, I just, we, and we sing this. We just sang this. How great the Father's love, how vast, how deep the Father's love, vast beyond all measure. We just sang it. Vast beyond all measure. At the end of this sermon, we're going to sing, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And that's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to grasp something that's vast. Vast. Now think about this. And, and here we're going to be helped by a thesaurus. If you all know what a thesaurus is, most of you probably don't. Uh, uh, because they don't even use them anymore in school, I don't think. But, uh, uh, but listen to what the thesaurus says just defining the word vast, and this will help you to get a sense of what Paul wants us to grasp. Vast. Length, breadth, depth, height, vast. Boundless. Colossal. Endless. Enormous. Gigantic. Huge. Immense. Infinite. Limitless. Mammoth. Massive. Tremendous. Paul wants us to grasp the love of Christ which is described by all of those words. Now, this makes sense of this prayer when you realize that these are the kind of things that we find very hard to grasp mentally. These eternal things are very hard to grasp mentally. And and, and we, we struggle with it. And that's why we presently today use the phrase, I can't wrap my brain around this. I can't wrap my brain around this. And that's true about anything that's vast, boundless, colossal, endless. Think of the ocean, for instance. Think, think of an aircraft carrier, okay? Aircraft carriers are these huge ships, absolutely massively huge ships. They're actually called cities on the water. They have 5,000 to 6,000 sailors in them. Think about that. A ship that has the same amount of people in it that live in Greenville, Okay? That's the population. Agreement is around 5,000. 5,000 people on the ship. These sh- aircraft carriers have 90 planes on them. Okay, these things are massive. They're like a whole city floating in the water there. And yet, if you were to see an aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean, and somehow you began to span away and span away and span away and span away to see the vastness of the ocean, that huge ship would start to look like a little chip of wood floating in the middle of the ocean, because the ocean is so vast. Think of space, and think of the speed of light, and think of things being light years away. 186,000 miles a second, Light traveling for 186,000 miles a second for one entire year is one light year. And we're talking about tens, thousands, millions of light years away. Our mind just starts to get numb. It gets numb. And that's the way it is when we think about God and we think about who God is. God is somebody who is uncreated. God is somebody who is forever. We start thinking, what do you mean uncreated? God never had a beginning. He always, always, always was. And he always, always, always will be. That, that's hard to grasp. It's hard to get our, our minds around. Think of infinity, a line, infinity, a line that is infinite. It goes forever that direction and goes forever that direction. It never stops. It just goes forever and ever and ever. And then think of something that has this length and, and width and, de- and length and depth and height and it's, in, it's infinite. In in something that is that big and infinite? And think of infinity. What happens when you cut infinity in half and then cut it in fourths and then cut it and cut it and cut it into a million pieces and you pick up one of those one millionth of infinity? What do you have? Infinity! (laughs) It's like, wait a minute. I can't grasp that. And when something is so hard to grasp, it's so mind-numbing, it's so hard to wrap your brain around, that we tend to quickly give up and not think about it. And Paul is praying in this prayer that we not give up. He is praying that God give us strength, the Holy Spirit give us power, the indwelling Christ be at work within us, that we would be able to grasp and comprehend the love of Christ, that that Christ would be made manifest to us. In John 14, 21, Jesus said this. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, It is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Now listen to this. And I will love him, and listen now, and manifest myself to him. I will make myself known to him. I will show him the width and the length and the breadth and the height of my love. I will manifest myself to him. And so this prayer is... When answered, we will comprehend, we will grasp, we will make the love of Christ our own. We will will sense it. We will understand it somehow in a deeper way. We will begin to somewhat wrap our brain around it. And that's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to understand the love of Christ. Now, let's think about it. Let's just try to conceptualize it for a little bit here. Let's try to grasp it. How deep, think of how deep is Christ's love. Think of how deeply Christ loves you. How deeply. Now, we've already been introduced to this in the book of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound, or I I, I translate that he lavished towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Now look at this verse. In him we have redemption through his blood. How deep does Jesus love us? How deep? Think about how much we value our health, our safety, our well-being, our blood. Think about how how all of this is precious to us. If we think we're sick, we rush to a doctor. If we think that we have a problem, we go get a test. We we value these things. We hold on to them. And what this is saying is that Jesus' love for us is so deep, so vast, so mammoth, so huge, so gigantic in his depth that he poured out his love for us. He poured out his blood for us. He gave his blood. He gave his life. He did this because he loved us. And he loves us even though we're sinners. The very things that we do, he hates. He is a God who hates sin. He is too pure to look upon sin. And it is our sin. And yet what does he do? He pours out his blood for us. He gives his life for us in order that our sins can be forgiven, in order that they can be paid for. And what Paul is praying is that we would grasp how deep of a love it is that somebody would actually do that for us. Dear ones, think with me for a second of what an ugly place Calvary actually was. In your mind, transport you back to Calvary right now where Jesus was crucified. There's three men who are being hung upon a cross. They're dragged there with that face knowing that they are going to die. In that moment, they are going to be put to death. They're struck. It's an ugly place. It's a place where you hear nails being nailed into six hands. There's three men there. There's three sets of hands, six hands. Nails are being nailed in. Men are screaming out in agony. Blood is splurting everywhere. They're being hung up by these nails. These crosses are going into the ground. Their feet are gathered together and they're being nailed again and they're crying out. There's agony. There's blood. And yet at the same time, there's hatred and meanness there. There are people there that are standing there approving of it, delighting in it because of their hatred and their animosity toward the Son of God. What a terrible, ugly place this is. If you've ever been to a scene of an accident... Or or heaven forbid you would ever go to the scene of a murder and you would see blood and you would realize that death had taken place. Maybe there's even dead bodies there. You would be sickened by that place. You would want to get away from that place. You would want to try to cleanse your memory of that place. But think of what a terrible place Calvary was nails piercing through flesh. Hatred, shame, men hung, Jesus being hung there naked and in all of his shame and in agony and death all about the place. And then all of a sudden it darkens. It becomes dark like night and the father leaves, turns his back. It's a godless, God-forsaken place and wrath is poured out. And Jesus put himself there, drove himself there, made himself go there, laid upon the cross could have ended it at any moment. He could have ended it. The stars, the heavens were filled with an army of angels that are ready to come and deliver him. And he would not do it. He would not do it. He endured that ugly place. He endured the blood. He endured the agony. He endured the darkness. He endured the wrath of the Father. He endured the hatred of people. And he kept there. He stayed there. And he endured death. He went through death. He chose to go through death. He chose to die. And he was driven by all of that, by an infinitely deep love for you. You would perish if he didn't go. You would die in your sin if he didn't go. He did not want you to die in your sin. He loved you too much. And so he went and he died. Oh, the depth of the love of Christ. Think of the length of the love of Christ. Think of how, wide, how, how, how far and far and wide and, 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 and wonderful this love is. Think of the length of the love of Christ. Look at verse chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Look at where this passage takes us, before the foundation of the world, before time began. And not one second before time again, if you can even talk like that, not one second before time again, in the vast eons, millions and thousands of, millions and billions of years, Before time began, what is happening there? Christ is loving you. Behold the length of this love. How long this love actually is. Christ is loving you. Back then... Christ was loving you. Your name was being mentioned. He took you as his own. You were being chosen in Christ Jesus. He took you on. He will go to the cross for you. He will face the ugliness of Calvary. For you. Oh, yes, no, no, Father, this one will not perish, not this one. This one will not perish. I love him. I love her. Think of how long Jesus has loved you. He has loved you for billions of years. The length, oh, the length, the infinite length of the love of Christ. About the moment you were conceived. Jesus loved you. A few little cells in your mother's womb. Jesus loved you. Dear saints, think of the day you were born. Jesus loved you. Think of as you were growing as a child. Jesus' infinite long love was there for you. Think of all of your sin. Jesus still loved you. He loved you. All of this time, he loved you. And think of what happened when the Holy Spirit began to work in your life and your heart was beginning to be transformed and changed and you saw yourself in your sin and you ran to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He praised you. He loved you. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will not in any way turn aside. No, no, no. He welcomed you. He embraced you. And all of your sin, like the prodigal coming home. He embraced you. Why? He's been loving you for millions and billions of years. And he loves you now. And he went to the cross for you. And he loved you. And he brought you into his life. He brought you into a relationship with him. He came and dwelt within you. He became a part of you. And, and, and that, was, that was precious. That was special. And he will never let you go. And he will always love you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Oh, the length of the love of Christ. Paul wants us to grasp this and know this. Oh, the width of the love of Christ. Think of the width of the love of Christ. Think of how broad it is. Think of all of the people around the world that Jesus loves. Think of how great and infinite a love he has. Dear ones, think about all of the Africans that Jesus loves. One of the most Christianized continents in the world right now is Africa. Think of Jesus' great love for Africans. Think of of a, a young woman in Africa. She has embraced Christ as her Savior. She loves Jesus. Jesus loves her. She could be in one of the cities of Africa. She could be in one of the villages of Africa. She could live on a dirt floor somewhere in Africa. But she has deeply, and for so long, for all of eternity, been loved by Jesus. Jesus died for her. Think of Asia. Think of the millions and millions of people in Asia. But think, but think in, in China, or, or Laos, or Vietnam, or, or Cambodia. Think, think of one of these countries. And there's an elderly Asian man, and he has left the family worship. He's left the Hinduism and Buddhism, and he's embraced Jesus and he loves Jesus, and Jesus' heart loves him so dearly. And we can go to South America, and we can go to Europe, and we can go to the islands, and we can go to Canada, and we can come here to North America, and Jesus literally, greatly, passionately, deeply, willing to die, did die, loves millions and millions of people with this great eternal love. And you know what's been a great challenge and comfort to me? Jesus loves people that I don't like. Jesus loves There are Christians that I have met. They're Christians, no question about it, who are arrogant. Some I've met are nasty. Some backbite. Some gossip. Some lie. Some hurt you. Some are just hard to be around. They're obnoxious. But Jesus loves them. They're precious to him. They're special. He bled and died. There's even a Christian I don't like because of all those reasons. He's arrogant. He's nasty. He backbites. He gossips. He's mean. He's self-centered. He's unforgiving. He's a jerk. And I'll name him. Got quiet in here, didn't it? It's me. There's times I don't even like me. But Jesus loves me. And he's for me. And this is how wide it is. His love is freely given. He's ready to forgive. He's patient. He's long-suffering. Years and decades, we've we've we, each one of us here have had these remaining sins that are so ugly, and we've do them for years and decades. But His love for us is never never gets any less. He just continues to love us. Do you ever? You, yeah, maybe there, those of you who are over sixty-seven. I'm I'm sixty. You know, Simon. Those of you who are over you, you're my age. Do you ever have that terrible experience where you, the Holy Spirit starts working in your life and you realize, oh, this is a terrible sin I have, and I've been doing this for 67 years, and then I realize, Lord, thank you so much that you've been so patient with me. Help me to repent. Help me to be be better. Help me to not overcome this. But thank you. Thank you for your great love. Jesus' love is so wide. It is so great. And then, of course, there's the height of Jesus' love. He's preparing a place for us. He's going to exalt us. We're going to sit on his throne with him and rule with him. He calls us brethren. We're going to share in his glory forever. In John 17, 24, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me, that where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Look at Jesus saying, I want my people to be with me and to share. His love is going to bring us to glory glory with him and we are going to be glorified with him. And dear friends, it is important that we meditate on these things. It is important that we think about these things. It is important that we try to grasp these things. It is important that we pray through these things in order that we might understand and grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is. And that's an important part of this knowledge that Paul is praying for. It's we're to make efforts to grasp it and to meditate on it and to think about it. We're just about to see some examples of that in some lives of some saints. But before that, look into your Bibles to chapter 4. Look in your Bibles to chapter 4 and just look at briefly at what Paul says there in verse 20. He says in 420, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Notice this: we're to learn Christ. We're to heard from him, we're to be taught by him. And then he says in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There is to be an effort that we make on our part to grasp through meditation, through prayer, through studying God's Word, through thinking about these things, through setting a time, and making an effort to grasp and get a hold of how great and majestic and vast and infinite is the love of Christ. We're to do that. We're to work on that. But there's more to it than this, not less. Not less than that, but there's more to it than this. Notice what Paul says. He says in verse 19, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. And a better translation here would be to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's not anti-knowledge. Knowledge is part of it, but it doesn't negate knowledge, but it goes beyond it's a, it, it, but how do you know something, how do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Notice what it says here. To know something which passes knowledge. How do you know something that passes knowledge? Why? Well, I'll tell you that you all do this. You all already know how to know something that passes knowledge. Well, what does this mean? It's an experiential knowledge. It's to know something because you experience it, it's to know something because you've partaken of it in some way. That's what it means. It's not a knowledge that you can necessarily quantify, make bar graphs for, uh, explain, even describe. It, it's a knowledge that's indescribable to, the, to, to, to cognitive ways that we put things out. But it's something that you very much know. And I'll give you three examples. Number one, the love of a parent for a child. You have a child, and that person comes into your life and absolutely, amazingly transforms your entire life. And all of a sudden, you love this little being immensely. And I can tell you, as a father, you could have never described this to me. It wasn't until I got it. I didn't get it until they put... Them in my hands. And that's a knowledge that passes understanding. It, it's, I can't even explain it to you. A, a, think of another one: a love for a spouse. If you have a spouse that you deeply, deeply love, you can't begin to explain your love for a spouse. This is why we have music. This is why we have poetry. This is why, because you can't you can't quantify, you can't put it under a microscope but if you have a spouse that you just deeply love and and she's your life and she's your joy and she's your great you can't, you, you, you know that. You know it. You've tasted it. You know what it is, but you can't describe it. Or, or think of a love of a friend, a dear good friend. If you've had the blessing in life of having a few dear good friends and you think about how, I, I had lunch yesterday with a dear good friend of mine and, and I, I just, I, we've been friends for 40 years and it was just like, you can't, uh, what, what drew us to one another? Why, why have we maintained this relationship? Why is this relationship so special? Why is it man to man? We just love each other so much. It's something that you, if you've never had, you can't explain to somebody. It's, it's that kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge of love. And this is what Paul is praying for here. He's praying that, that we would not only mentally, cognitively grasp and think about and meditate on, on Calvary and on, on his eternal love and on, on his present love and on, and on his constant forgiveness and on the love that he has preparing a place for us and how Jesus, we just seem to mean everything to him. And we do. We do mean everything to him. And that's what Paul means by that, that strange and glorious and amazing phrase that he says on chapter 1 and verse 23 which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are somehow the full; We're everything to Jesus, and Jesus is everything to us. We know that cognitively. But have you, have you experienced it in this way? Do you know it in this way that Paul is praying? And that's why the hymn writer wrote, and we sang last week, the love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. Paul is praying that Christ would be made real to us. Paul is praying that the Father would grant us. The Holy Spirit would be at work. The Son living within us would be manifesting himself. And that the love of Christ would be experienced, become real. There would be a knowledge of this that every man, woman, Boy, girl, rich, poor, slave, free in the Ephesian church would be granted the strength and power by God to grasp. That's the prayer. And when that love is experienced, there is a power, there is a glory, there is a sweetness that is very hard to describe. And sometimes it can only be described and touched upon in poetry and in song. And sometimes it's described by people who have unique gifts of description. And one of those men is Jonathan Edwards. And I would like to now close this time by reading these two testimonies to you, with you, as you listen as I read them along. And I'm, I'm doing this to give you an, an example. And I'm doing this for all of us to whet our appetites. To whet our appetites. Jonathan Edwards is the first one, so please turn to the one that has Jonathan Edwards' name at the bottom. Edwards used to use the word sweet all the time, sweet. To describe the love of Christ, he would, always, he would use the word sweet. You're going to see that in here. But Edwards says, I have sometimes had a sense of excellent fullness of Christ, his meekness and suitableness as a Savior, whereby he has appeared to me far above the chief of ten thousands. His blood and atonement have appeared sweet, his righteousness sweet, which is always accompanied with ardency of spirit and inward strugglings and breathings and groanings that cannot be uttered, to be emptied of myself and be swallowed up in Christ. Now here he's describing an experience that he has had of Christ and of knowing Christ's greatness. But then he describes, and this is a famous one, this comes right out of just his journals. He didn't think this would be published. He says, once as I rode out into the woods and for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. I want to stop right here. Notice what Edwards is doing. He's trying to recover his health. He rode out on his horse. He got to a place where he wouldn't be disrupted by anybody. He's out alone. He commonly does this. He's out having his devotions for divine contemplation and prayer. He's thinking, he's trying to grasp the love of Christ. He's, he's meditating, he's doing his part. And, then, and this, I think, is a perfect example of when James says, if you draw near to God, draw, God will draw near to you. Edward saddled his horse, walked out, he's seeking to draw near to God. He then goes on to write this. I had a view that for me was extraordinary. For the glory of the Son of God, of the glory of the Son of God, as mediator between God and man, And his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception beyond understanding, which continued as near as I can judge for about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I do not know, uh, uh, how, how, do not otherwise, I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Then also, almost as an afterthought, he said this, I have several other times had views very much of the same nature, which have had the same effect." He was granted to grasp the love of Christ for him. Let's turn to another one. And I'm going to give you a little bit of biography before you read this. Edward Payson. This is a letter that Edward Payson read to his sister. Edward Payson is 44 years old. He is lying on his bed and he is dying. He's a pastor. He was a very well-known, well-beloved, deeply loved pastor in, in, in America in the early 1700s, in the 1700s. He's dying right now at 44 years old. Edward Payson has known a lot of pain in his life. He and his wife had eight children, two of whom survived infancy. So Edward Payson buried six toddlers, young children. Edward Payson has seen a lot of struggling in his life. At the time that he's writing, at the time that he's dying, he has a daughter named Elizabeth, one of the two that have survived into adult, adulthood. Elizabeth is, is in her early teens, or late teens. She's not a Christian. Her father is dying. This, I'm just giving you background information on this. Through his death, she was so undone that she actually became a Christian. And we actually have one of her hymns in our hymnal. Oh, uh, more love, O oh Christ, to thee. Uh, Elizabeth Prentice, her name became when she was married. And she wrote a very famous book called Stepping Heavenly Word, which was, well, which was read by lots of women, especially, uh, over the last 200 years. But listen to this letter that he wrote as Edward Payson is, is, is on his deathbed. He's writing this to his sister, and he wrote, Were I to adopt the figurative language of Bunyan, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, I might date this letter... From the land of Beulah, Beulah being heaven, that, that paradise land, of which I have been more—I ha, of which I have been for some weeks a happy inhabitant. The celestial city is full to my view; its glorious beams are upon me, its breezes fan me, its odors are wafted to me, its sounds strike upon my ear, and its spirit is breathed into my heart. Nothing separates me from it but the river of death, which now appears but as an insignificant rill that may be crossed at a single step whenever God shall give me permission. The son of righteousness has been gradually drawing nearer and nearer and appearing larger and brighter as he approached. And now he fills the whole hemisphere. Pouring forth a flood of glory in which I seem to float like an insect in the beams of the sun, exalting yet almost trembling while I gaze on this almost excessive brightness. See, this is why you need the strength of God to even grasp this and endure it. And wondering with unutterable wonder why God should deign to shine upon a sinful world. A single heart and a single tongue seem altogether inadequate to my wants, I want a whole heart for every separate emotion and a whole tongue to express that emotion. He then writes, Christians might avoid much trouble and inconvenience if they would only believe what they profess, that God is able to make them happy without anything else. They imagine that if such a dear friend were to die, or if such blessings were to be removed, they would be miserable whereas God can make them a thousand times happier without them. To mention my own case, God has been depriving me of one blessing after another. He was on his deathbed when he wrote this. But as each one was removed, he has come in and filled its place. And now when I am a cripple and not able to move, I am happier than ever I was in my life before or ever expected to be. And if I had believed this 20 years ago, I might have been spared much anxiety. Dear ones, these people, be careful here. These people were not seeking experiences. These people were seeking Christ. And the experience that they were experiencing came. Now, I'm not saying you and I are going to be an Edwards or a Payson. I'm not saying that I've even come close to these men. But I have experienced the love of Christ and the vastness of it by God's grace in such a way to be transported almost to feel like if I died at this moment, nothing would make me more happy than to be and to see with sight what I'm only grasping by faith and to experience him. Seek after Christ. Seek after his love. Pray that God would open your eyes and empower you and enable you to grasp the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of his love, of his love for you, and that somehow his love, he would come and sup with you, he will come and dine with you, and his love for you would become real, and you would know it and you would experience with increasing knowledge. Not to maybe be blown on the ground and weeping for an hour like Jonathan Edwards. They, maybe that is saved for special people at special times. But nevertheless, I have known people, even on their dying bed, who have seemed to be transported out of this world already and in the presence of Unbelievers, do you know anything of this? Have you tasted anything of the love of God? Have you tasted anything of the joy of having your sins forgiven? Dear ones, I want to tell you, unbeliever, if you are here today and you have never repented, you have never turned from your sin and turned to Christ, turned from this world and turned to Christ, been all in for Christ. If you've never done that, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. If somebody's on the other side, let me tell you something. One drop, one drop of the love of Christ for you one brief, brief sense of his greatness and his glory and his love, one drop of the joy of sins forgiven, and you will never go back to anything the world will offer you. Anything, all of its money, all of its joys, all of its pleasures, all of its comforts will say nothing to you that you might have him, that you might know that you might grasp that which even surpasses knowledge. Oh, may God give us this grace. Let's pray the prayer. Let us pray. Let us pray. Oh, Father, please, we pray. Please, Father, grant to us, grant to us out of your riches, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in our inner man, Grant to us that Christ will take residence and dwell and feast with us and and dine with us and, and live with us and manifest himself to us. Root us and ground us in love, Father, please. That we might grasp, that we might lay hold of. Give us the strength to lay hold of the love of Christ for us. How deep, how wide, how long. How high, how glorious, how eternal. Father, help us to know that which surpasses knowledge. Help us, please, we pray, help us to know Christ. All of us in this room, from the youngest child who's able to even hear these words, to the sinner farthest away from you, closest to the gate of hell, To the dear saint who has loved you, give us more. Give us more, we pray, more of Christ. That we might know the deep, deep love of Jesus. We trust you. We're asking you. You're a good father. Let us leave from this place and seek Christ. We pray this in his precious name.